What's up, everybody? This is Mind Your Money, a show that highlights people and stories that will inspire you to get your money right. Now, for those of you who have been listening consistently to the podcast on a regular basis, you might have noticed that throughout the entire month of November in 2020, I did not post new episodes. I just kind of like abruptly stopped <laughs> putting content up on the podcast. And, um, you know, I stopped posting on social media as much and also um, just stopped kind of creating content. And it's not that I slipped up or, you know, I made a mistake or I forgot the deadline or anything like that. I purposefully decided to let these things and I just want to make clear it's not that I don't enjoy doing these things like I love posting content to YouTube I love putting podcast episodes up on this podcast I love producing content for you guys and editing everything and posting everything it's just that sometimes you know really big projects come my way different things come to me and I'm like you know what I gotta make a choice I can either like completely feel burnt out from constantly working go 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 mode or I can drop a few things and focus my attention on something else for a little while. And that way I can actually make time for self-care as well. So for me, November was a no content month. I just called it my no content November. Okay. Because it just was important for me to not really worry about not creating anything new and just focus on, you know, a few small things and then also really my self-care. So I've been getting on my Peloton. Okay. My building, they have Peloton bikes now in the gym. So I've been doing my Peloton a lot. I've been doing a little meditation. I had some time to give myself my own, my own manicure at home. Okay. I was able to read three new books or actually two of them were um, audiobooks, and one was an actual book. But just, you know, doing things I feel like most of the time I don't, I'm not able to prioritize doing these things. And so I really wanted to focus a little bit more on self-care and not feel burnt out. And I think that's just like going to be my ammo for 2021. That's going to be like my whole vibe for 2021. There's going to be that question that, and actually I'll put it out to you guys too. I'll put this question out to you that instead of spending all your time stressing out and constantly go, go, go and spreading yourself too thin, what would happen if you were extremely selective about a few things that matter to you most in 2021? So think about that, write that down, take that with you. Um, but because I didn't post any content for a month, I got some time. I got to make up that time. Okay. I got a content to make up for. So what I did today for this episode, which is going to be a special episode where I'm not interviewing anybody. It's just me giving you some goodies. I put together a list of seven of my favorite clips from the interviews that I have been, um, a part of this year from 2019, 2020, um, for different podcasts that have invited me to speak on their platforms to talk about money. So, uh, I'm going to describe the seven podcasts first. I'm just going to give a quick description of the whole and the episode and, you know, the content that they put up. And then I'm just going to stop talking and I'm going to actually play the seven clips back to back. So you can hear the snippets of these amazing episodes. And then in the show notes, I will link to these episodes. So not only will you get to hear this episode, which is a little hodgepodge collection, of all of the snippets, but you also will be able to then go click on the episodes that you were most intrigued by and go listen to hours and hours of more amazing financial content. So the first one is my girl, Janice Torres Rodriguez. She's the host of Do Quiero Dinero podcast. Um, she is super dope. She's a first-gen Puerto Rican blogger. She has a, a food blog and she's also a business coach. She has built her empire by side hustling and really focusing on financial independence. So she posts on Instagram. She also obviously has her podcast and she's really just a motivator, I think, for first-generation people to really think about financial literacy differently because she sees it from an entrepreneur 
entrepreneurship, from a investing, from a business owner's perspective, and really focuses on generational wealth building. Um, so the first episode clip that you're going to hear is the episode that I did with her for her podcast, Yo Quiero Dinero. It's an earlier podcast. And as a heads up, before you go off to hear it, it was recorded in about March of 2020, which was right at the beginning of COVID-19. And I'm pretty sick in this episode. I'm going to tell you right now, I think what happened was that I had coronavirus. I don't know for sure. I really, I have no clue if I did have it indeed because I didn't get a chance to ever take the test. But during that week or two um, in March, when I interviewed with her, when I recorded that podcast, I was so sick and I didn't want to reschedule. So what I did was instead I just did it. I showed up. I did my best, but you could tell that I'm really sick there. And my suspicion is that I had COVID and that I got over it, but We'll only know if I eventually take an antibody test, which I haven't done yet, but I plan to before 2021, just so that I know for sure. But anyway, you'll hear the episode with me and Janice. And if you're wondering why I sound so stuffy and sick, just know that it was back in March when I very likely had COVID. Susie Orman says something called sometimes hurting is helping and sometimes That's helping right. is hurting, right? So it's like if you're hurting yourself to help somebody, you ain't helping That's nobody. Right. You're hurting everybody. And the other way around. Mm-hmm. Some, exactly. You're hurting everybody. And sometimes like the most loving thing that you can do for yourself and for the people around you is to say, hey, guys, right now I need to focus on what I'm doing because I have long term plans that are going to help all of us. But if I'm trying to stretch myself so thin that I'm just like you said, drowning, I'm not going to end up helping anybody. So that's, you know, and obviously it's so hard yes. in the family. Like you, you want to be there and especially like Latino households we are like so family Mm -hmm. oriented and it's like we feel this obligation to pull everybody up with us but at what expense right? Yeah it's so true and in my family um, I have eight brothers and sisters plus my mom and dad so we're talking about a big big community (laughs) like a yeah girl that's a whole you need a whole boat literally like it's not like you can grab them one by one you need yes it's so many of us (laughs) and and you know another thing I think is important at that time that I that I didn't realize early on and I ended up doing it a little bit later was you can't just say to people or I, I believe that you shouldn't um just say to people like all right guys I need to get I need to get myself out of the situation so I'm gonna disappear go fix my situation right. on my own by myself and whatever right. y'all got going on exactly and then problem. I'll be back when I got money <laughs> like it's like that's so messed right. up and so for me what I actually did was instead of just dipping out and, and disappearing was I showed them I showed my mom I showed my brother my sister I said look this is my budget like and I literally pulled up the computer and was like este dinero es para la renta este dinero this is that and I was literally going through showing when I get my check this is what it looks like but then this is where everything goes and then this is the credit cards and this is how much I have to put and they were like oh my god like jaw to the ground like this is nuts like I can't believe you have to send so much money like they're like you don't have to do that you could send a smaller amount make it more manageable and then I showed them okay but look at this compound interest calculator if I do that I'm gonna be end up giving them twice as much money in interest fees instead of being able to have that money for us you know like I had to uh, explain the math to them and like show them the numbers so they could see why is it that I was choosing to be so aggressive. But once I did that, like I felt like I was helping them a little to do that because then they were thinking like, how should I be handling my money? Should I do the same thing that Janelle's doing? Should I have a, a spreadsheet like that? Do I need mm-hmm. to get one of those spreadsheets? Like, can you make a copy of that spreadsheet for me? Because they realize like, this is how people are supposed to handle money. They're supposed to have a plan for it. And I think that's valuable for your family to see that. So if you're in that position, don't be afraid to show them and engage with them, involve them in your plan. Because if you just go do it on your own, they're not going to see what you're doing and they're not going to understand it and they won't be able to benefit from it. Absolutely. I love that. 
Okay, then the second clip is from the Choose Five podcast, which is uh, a podcast that is called Choose Five because it's talking about FI, which is short for financial independence. And it's hosted by Brad and Jonathan, who are two very well-known guys in the entire community of FI or FI, financial independence, not just retire early, but really focusing on just building financial independence. And um, they have been featured in documentaries. They have been featured in a lot, like a lot of different media and press around them. And their podcast, Choose Fi, focuses on conversations about how to rethink, you know, financial topics like debt and, um, you know, paying bills and, you know, traveling the world for free, just like different, different things like that, that are all financial quirky topics. And so the episode that I uh, did with them, it was actually, they called it, um, Breaking the Cycle of Poverty, which I love that they chose that title because it really does, um, you know, emphasize a lot of what I focus on in the episode that we talked about um, was my, you know, things like my background. We talked about things like my education and the difference between, um, you know, how my life was back when I was low income and, you know, growing up and how my life is now. So that was a really great, fun episode to do. And um, you'll be able to hear a snippet of that episode where Brad asked me a question that I really, really liked. You know, I wanted to ask about maybe those first couple months on campus in Providence, I guess. I've read a lot of studies how there was a push by many of the elite universities to extend, you know, acceptance and, and, and in your case, scholarships to lower income students, but maybe surprisingly to them or inexplicably, the, the graduation rates are significantly lower than I think they first expected. And I yeah. think, you know, I, I mentioned this in, in the setup. I, I think I used the phrase clash of cultures. I, I probably meant culture shock. And I'm curious, like, if you could help somebody who is in your spot, you know, now, and they're getting started, like, how would you help those low income students succeed at really any college, not less, you know, an elite university, like, what should they be armed with to succeed? And, you know, that they're just not even expecting, I guess. <laughs> the biggest thing is what you said, it's the culture shock. And the biggest thing about culture that I think people tend to ignore, besides the food you eat and the music you listen to, it's the words that you speak. It's how you talk, literally, the expressions, the idioms, your mannerisms, all that stuff is really in the root of the culture that you were brought up in. And for me, I was brought up in New York City, vibrant Brooklyn, Dominican American community, mostly other Caribbean immigrants as well. So we're talking about Jamaican, Trinidadian, Bayesian, Haitian, you know, a community of, of Caribbean immigrants, both Latino and also Black Caribbean. And so when we think about that culture, you know, I'm going to generalize here, of course, I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm part of the culture. And I say we're loud, we're boisterous, we we like to dance, we like to play loud music, we like to party, we eat a lot. And the expressions and the idioms that are commonly used in American English are somewhat foreign to us unless we've been here for more than one or two generations. And so when I got to campus, that was the immediate thing that stuck out to me was like, I don't fit here because people don't talk like me. I don't talk like these people. I don't act like these people. I'm an outcast in every way. As soon as I open my mouth, and even before I open my mouth, like I'm, I dress differently, like I walk differently or like I'm using my hands when I talk like people look at me and it's like oh she's funny she's interesting where's she from you know versus me blending in with everybody so that was for me was the biggest culture shock was just like people using manner like expressions of you know turn of phrase that I just never heard of I was like what is that and I kept asking myself what is that what does that mean what does that mean and it just made me feel really really dumb whereas when I was in high school I was one of the top performing kids in my class I felt really really smart so what does that do to your ego to your your 
your conscience, where you go from feeling like you are top of the pack to feeling like you are in the total wrong path because you just can't even keep up. And so that's, I think, psychologically what starts to get to low-income students when they finally get to a prestigious institution. And they're around this environment that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like home. And the only thing that helped me was surrounding myself by peers that also had difficulties with this transition and also experienced similar culture shock. And so we could talk about it together. And I would be like, do you know what this means? Today I was talking to someone and they said to me, that's not in my wheelhouse. And I literally just looked at them like, what the, what's a wheelhouse? <laughs> like, I don't know what that is. And so in my mind, I'm picturing like a wagon. I'm like, what? What is going on? And so I had to like constantly look these things up and just try to keep up. And so I think the biggest thing that I would do for a low-income student now that's going to, you know, do this soon is exposure as early on as possible to the rigorous language, rigorous vocabulary, the, just the rigor that is going to be expected of you and that you're going to be surrounded by in terms of the vocabulary and the word choice that's being used when people are speaking, the writing that you're going to have to read, the writing that you're going to have to produce. Like I had to work my butt off to write well enough to get a B. And I'm an A student, you know, coming to this school, I had to go to the writing center constantly to get them to like mark up my papers. And then I, you know, attempted three or four times before I thought I could submit it. And that kind of work that you have, that you're going to have to put in, it's kind of scary to think, right? Because you think you're going to get there and you deserve to be there just like everyone else. But you see that you have to work five times harder than the kids around you to get the same grades as them. So I think what happens is, you know, oftentimes we're not preparing the students with that understanding before they get there. So when they get there, it's a total shock. They hate it and they go running back home, you know, which, which I almost did. Thank goodness for my mom who was like, uh-uh, you're not coming home. You better figure it out, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, thank you for that answer. I thought it was really, really interesting and thoughtful. The third podcast snippet you'll hear is from a podcast called Best Friends Finance Podcast, which is hosted by two women named Amanda Kessler and Lara Ford. I found out about them through Instagram or they found me on Instagram. They reached out to me and they're both working moms and also uh, entrepreneurs as well. And they just, you know, made it all the way through to their forties without ever really talking about money. And I feel like that is very common. That's like so common for people to just go through life, doing everything day in and day out, making ends meet, whatever they doing, what they got to do. And then all of a sudden they realize like, uh, we better start paying attention to how much money we have because retirement is only, you know, 10, 15, 20 years away and that's going to fly by. So they kind of realized that and through a few conversations that they had with some of their friends, it really opened their eyes to the fact that like we need to be having more important conversations about money and we need to open up these conversations without judgment, without like lecturing each other and making each other feel shame. Like, no, just making it sound like a chat between a couple best friends. And so I really like that vibe that they have on their podcast. Um, when they invited me to join, I was like, sure, I really like this concept. Why not? Um, and so there, the episode that I did with them is really focusing on like my story and my upbringing. And, um, they asked me a really fun question about my parents and any lessons that I remember early money stuff from, you know, growing up with my parents in my house. And so that's the short clip that you'll hear, um, with, with, uh, best friends finance podcast. So, Yanelli, I am fascinated by the fact that you were one of nine children. Yes. Laura and I always like to hear people's money stories. So yes. what you learned from your parents growing up and, and, and how that shaped you as a person. Do you remember your first um, memories of money and how that shaped you? You know, I have this really weird memory uh, that it always comes back to me. And I always tell my boyfriend that he just laughs at me. But I, I remember being like seven or eight years old. And my dad is from Dominican Republic. And um, so he, my, both my parents don't really speak a lot of English. So at home, I would speak Spanish. And in school, I would speak English. 
Um, and so at home, we had all these weird things. Like, you know, my parents are very traditional. So like the girls had to learn how to cook, even though the boys get to go outside and play. And it was very frustrating. But I always found these little ways to find ways to make money. So for my dad, so I would be like, dad, what are some things that, you know, you need that you need done that I can do? And one of the weird things was he really hated when his hair, when his like grays were growing in and you could see that he had grays or like really white hair coming like against it because he has really dark black hair. You could really see it stand out. So I, he would like lie down on the couch and I would pluck out all of his grays uh. one by one. <laughs> and then he would pay me a nickel for every gray hair that I plucked. So I was making money when I was like seven years old, just from like random things like that. And it was like a nice little bonding for me and my dad. Cause I would be like, dad, you know, this week you have, you don't have as many as last week. It'd be like such a silly thing. But um, I think it taught me like, you can't just go to dad and be like, dad, give me money. You have to like put in a little bit of work. R- weird as it might be, you know, my dad just took some really weird jobs, unforgiving jobs. And, and the point is you do what you have to do and you work hard to earn your money. And so I've always had that like in me that I have like a really strong work ethic. Sometimes I work too much, um, but I think it's because of my parents and how hard they worked. Absolutely. After that one, you're going to hear a short clip from the Journey to Launch podcast, which is hosted by Jamila Souffrant. She's an amazing, amazing financial influencer, entrepreneur, a mom. She and her husband, who actually her husband is a teacher in the New York City public school system. So, uh, you know, shout out to all the teachers out there. COVID has been rough on teachers, but um, Jamila's husband and her together, the two of them were able to save and invest over $150,000 in two years. And her husband's a teacher, okay? And Jamila's out here transforming her life, you know, fully living her dream, which is to be an entrepreneur so she can be a stay-at-home mom and really devote time to her children. She has really awesome content, both on her personal Instagram, Jamila Soufran, but also on her Journey to Launch Instagram and on her podcast as well, which I think has over 2 million uh, views at this point. So she's definitely a great podcast host. I absolutely love listening to her podcast. And she had me on recently to talk about my story and especially to talk about the transition from just like doing this as a, a hobby, as a side hustle to actually becoming somebody whose career is based around personal finance education. So talking about my full-time job. And so that was a really fun episode. You're going to hear me talking to Jamila. When my dad turned 70, we had two years before he turned 70, we had started a, a bank account and three of my sisters, two of my sisters and me are account holders on the account. So every month we just go in, everybody will zell each other, like will zell the, the account holders. So the money goes into the account. And so all of us are just pooling money together every month, every month for years. So when my dad turned 70, we went to him for his birthday and told him like, you can retire even if you don't feel comfortable because we have enough money that we've been saving so that if you can't make groceries or rent for any reason, we'll make up the money from the account. And he was like literally in tears because he he didn't think he was going to actually be able to stop working. He was 70 and he was still driving a taxi cab in New York. And that was kind of what we, how we decided to approach it was like, we have to come together. Everybody put as much as you can. And you know, that's how we handled it because me by myself, I can't retire my dad, but like, but all of us together, there's more power in numbers. So that was kind of like my brilliant plan. And then my family was like, oh, respect, respect. I was so smart because now we have money if, you know, it's a medical emergency or if they need to take a trip, like we got it. And so that was, you know, kind of me thinking ahead and, and thinking how, how can we approach it early on? I love that. And I hope uh, maybe if your people are listening and are have situations with their older parents, 
where and if you do have the capacity you know you have the relationship because not everyone has the relationship with their siblings to do something like that and then not every sibling can or wants to do something like that you know but I think it's well worth like the conversation because even if it's a couple hundred dollars it can be helpful and you know quite frankly like in our cultures um, in our respective cultures and in other cultures like it is just part of it you take care of your family members that can't take care of yourself especially the older ones especially your parents or grandparents so I just think that is like a great idea and so hopefully people got some maybe some tips from that yeah definitely and we I mean like you said I mean everybody's not gonna be able to do you know like for some of my sisters and brothers that work jobs that don't pay as much they would just put what they could you know hey if you can only put 25 35 no judgment whatever you can even if I'm putting 150 don't worry about what I'm doing just do what you can and just focus on you and when you can do more you do more and it doesn't really matter how much we're each putting because what matters is that it all adds up over time that's what we want to be focusing on because I know it could probably feel weird for somebody if they're putting 25 dollars and then the, the other sister is putting in 100 or 200 and it's, you feel like oh that I want you know you're not kind of doing enough but you can only do what you can and so we, we made sure to set that expectation that we're not looking to see how much you're putting that's not what this is about yeah I love that and because you know I imagine there's also situations where someone is not doing anything and there could be some resentment the next one is going to be a short clip from a podcast called The New Money Podcast, which is hosted by a Canadian dude who is so funny and so great. His name is Nathan Kennedy. He goes by um, New Money Podcast on Instagram, and he's just great. He's been posting all these reels on Instagram that just keep cracking me up. But his podcast is really focused on 20-somethings, early 20s, because he's in his early 20s. He, I don't even think he's 25 yet. He's under 25, so he's a baby. Um, and he realized that, like, People his age, they're not really trying to talk about money. And and when you do bring up money, it's uncomfortable. And so he wanted to create his podcast so that he could make money a little bit more engaging, more interesting, so that young people who want to learn about money don't have to be bored to death in the process. So um, in his podcast, we really focus on why personal finance is not in schools, why we're not learning about it in schools. And so that's a really great conversation where I really go in, like I go in about why, uh, you know, systemically we are not um, focusing on financial literacy education. So you'll hear that one. We're doing people a disservice by not equipping them, right? And just kind of being like, mm-hmm. there's this thing called a job, you make money, like figure it out on the go. Like it's, it's That's right. there's, just, there's so much to it. And like, it can be second nature once you figure it out, but it's definitely yeah. something that, you know, is, is overwhelming when you're first getting started. Right. And so- why do you think that something that's such a, a prevalent issue isn't already a requirement in the United States specifically? So in our country, the biggest problem is bureaucracy. Okay. It is so frustrating because right now, education is very much a localized issue. The federal mm-hmm. government does not necessarily make a ton of decisions about local public schools. Um, yeah. There is a small pot of money that the federal government puts aside for education. I think it's like 4% of the federal budget goes to mm-hmm. education, which is disgraceful. <laughs> and um, and the rest of the money that schools need to operate comes from local property taxes. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem in the U.S. is that if you live in an expensive neighborhood with really high property taxes, the schools are really good. Great schools. Mm-hmm. They got chess, they got soccer team, they got the best teachers. And then when you go, when you grow up in a community like the one I grew up in, where the families are just trying to make it day to day, a lot of them are on government assistance. The schools are quote unquote, bad, suffering, under-resourced, whatever you want to call it, right? The schools Mm -hmm. are struggling. And so that's the real problem is that when you have schools that are struggling and under-resourced, it's hard for them to get really good talent. And when they hire teachers who are 
you know, not the quote unquote best teachers out there. Those teachers are probably not equipped to teach personal finance because they don't know it themselves. Right. And so what you see is this, this, this lack of equality in terms of like some schools have really great teachers and they're like, you know what we should teach? We should teach personal finance. I'll do the course. I'll teach mm -hmm. it. Great. Now that school has it. Other schools. Oh, we should teach personal finance. Anybody know about that stuff? No, 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 no. I don't know anything. Oh, okay. Oh, we can't teach it. Right. <laughs> so it's really sad. So there's a lack of knowledge, a little bit of a bureaucracy problem. And, um, and then the other thing is the space. So if you have a jam-packed schedule of classes, math, mm -hmm. science, reading, writing, you an elective, gym, whatever, and where where are you going to fit personal finance as another class on that schedule? Right. So there's this whole movement saying, well, we don't need to, to make room for it. We don't need to erase anything else. What we need to do is switch what's being taught. Don't right. like try to add another class to your schedule. Remove some of the useless information <laughs> that students are learning and yeah. replace it with this critical cool information. So, you right. know, I think about sitting in high school, taking econ class. I'm like, what the hell am I use supply and demand for? I mean, this yeah. is great information in theory, but is it going to help yeah. me when I get my first job? No. Right, right. So I think like econ is a good place to, if it's a full year economics class, the first semester could be personal finance. Second semester could be econ. Um, right. And so that way you learn about your own personal finances. And then in economics, you see, okay, global economics takes a lot of those personal finance principles and applies on that larger scale. So, or even business, maybe you take personal finance and then you take business and you say like just how you need your emergency savings account if you run a business you need runway right like mm -hmm. these concepts apply um a lot of across the board a lot of times but we're not making the time and, and the argument is very hard right now because politicians are not necessarily um incentivized to the laws to make a requirement for personal finance because there's a lot of lobbyists that right. don't want that you know what i mean like big the biggest lobbyists in the u.s right now are banks and financial corporations and institutions they do you think they want us to learn personal finance in school <laughs> yeah hell to the no 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 because if yeah. we learn about this stuff then we're not going to be as easily preyed upon they're not exactly. going to be able to do these predatory practices that they've been making them rich all these generations mm -hmm. they're going to have to cut that stuff out so i think there's a combination of factors, but those are probably the biggest ones. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, that there's there's a level of intentionality given how critical it is to people's lives. So it's there's I mean, as corrupt as they might be at the top, they're not stupid. They know they know what they're exactly. doing. Exactly. You know of course. I mean? so, and they're and they're taking and they're raking in the money while we're out here struggling. And I think the important <laughs> thing is that they realize if we do teach this, yes, it'll help the country across as a whole, but my specific pocket is is right. not gonna be lined in a way that I'm used to because you know people aren't going to be lining up to go sign up for a terrible checking account or savings account that charges all these fees and gives you really low interest returns. So yeah, no, and it's, it's, it's really interesting. You know, I, I had this actual discussion and this, this is clearly, I could go down a rabbit hole with this, but I'll, the last thing I'll say about <laughs> yeah. is, um, you know, she, she talked about sort of uh, the United States in particular, and she kind of compared like just people in, in the lower socioeconomical uh, communities as, as like flowers. And if you don't give a flower soil, water and sunlight, right. it's just going to die or it's going to wilt or it's not going to do anything. That's right. It's like, you can't just, you can't just scream at the flower to grow. You know what I mean? Like exactly. there's, there's, an there's an element of um, ambition and personal responsibility, of course, but right. it, it, it's a very, very complex issue. So That's maybe right. we'll, maybe we'll hop on another call and we can chat about that. But <laughs> yeah, man, I'm like you, I could talk about that stuff all day. And then you'll also hear a short clip from the Financial Diets podcast, which is called The Financial Confessions. This is a really great one because it's both on YouTube and on the podcast, and it's hosted by Chelsea Fagan, who is one of the co-founders of The Financial Diet. Chelsea and also her co-founder, 
Lauren started a YouTube channel called The Financial Diet way back in the day. Like I think it was like 2014 before I started Miss Be Helpful on YouTube. And um, yeah, both of them just kind of opened up and started talking about money as young millennials, like just kind of opening up, making sure that people knew that there's no reason to be ashamed of having money conversations. And especially as two young women, it was like really empowering to see them talking openly about money and telling their stories, their personal stories and giving opinions and tips. And I think like the big goal of their entire platform, because the financial diet is now more than a YouTube channel. It's more than a podcast. It's really um, a community. It's, it's like a media platform that goes way beyond just a show. And, you know, they really focus on helping women to reclaim their relationship with money, not just women. I mean, any, you know, other genders can, can listen as well, but I think it's really hoping to empower women. That's the way I see it. And how, um, you know, how it's money is just something that we have to deal with in our everyday lives. So why not talk about it? So, um, that is a really, that was actually a really fun episode and I post about it on my YouTube channel, but I share a short clip that Chelsea had asked me a really great question. And I posted just a quick snippet of my response to Chelsea's question. What about for people who have family members, let's say, who need help but won't ask or won't take it? That is hard. That's like my mom. Oh, my goodness. That woman. She, like, every time I go to her house, I see little things where I'm like, Mom, why didn't you tell us that you needed this, like, replaced? It's like, no, I don't like to, I don't like to bother you. I don't like to, you know, like, you guys work so hard for your money. I'm like, and what about all the diapers that you changed when I was a little kid? No, I didn't want to bother you, and I did. Like, it's like, <laughs> you, it's not a bother, but she really doesn't. She feels shame that she has to ask her kids for money. And I see it every time we have these conversations. But there have been times where I will invite her to go out and she says, well, I don't have good clothes to wear. Like all the stuff that I have has holes in it or it's been washed too much and it's all, you know, it's not good quality anymore. I'm like, then why didn't you tell me and we would have bought you a new outfit? And that's not a reason to not come to an event, you know? And yeah. she has nine kids. Between the nine of us, one of us could have got her a new dress. But it's <laughs> the shame around not wanting to ask for help. And so I think for me, the big thing that I do is I'm always checking in. I will always like, now my mom's using WhatsApp. Oh goodness. So oh she will God. send me pictures of Jesus and Mary every day. I'm like, oh, thanks mom. It's <laughs> like, so I'll text her back and I'll be like, thanks mommy. Happy Thursday to you too. Do you need anything in the house? Food, clothes, house, everything. Like just really checking in because I know she's not going to initiate. She's not going to initiate that conversation. So showing her that by constantly checking in with her, like, hey, do you need anything? Money, clothes, new food. Like, do you want me to do a fresh direct order and send it to the house? Like, what can I do that will help? And then I find that sometimes she will say, oh, well, you know, actually I have been running out of oil and rice. I'll be like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll order it for you. Uh, but if I don't ask, she won't tell and she's not going to initiate it. So I find that I really have to make an effort to check in on her every now and then and make sure she's okay. So just check in on your people. Like it's, it's hard to ask for money. It's so hard. It's so hard to ask for a lot of things, but like in general help asking for help, it's, you have to be really vulnerable to do that. And vulnerability, as we all know, is really, really hard um, for people to, to, you know, willingly experience and put themselves in that position. How has, how did growing up with nine siblings impact your like your financial approach <laughs> well financially interesting I don't know I was gonna say like my life approach I can I can answer that with well let's do both okay let's start with the life approach like one I am the least selfish person in the world to a fault like I will give and give and give and give 
whatever you need. Like if you're in my house, I'll be like, oh, you need a, you need a bathing suit here. I got a couple. Or you want to wear this here? I have an extra pair of sandals. I'm just like that with everything. And I've met people, friends of mine, who've been like the only child or have come from a smaller family that are not like they are very oh, particular yeah. about their things. And it's like in my house, you couldn't, you could not afford to not share. We would share clothes. We would share like hairbrushes. We would share like the bathroom, like the mirror, doing makeup at the same time. All the girls. I'm like, it was always just like we don't have. We can't afford to not share. Like we have way too many people, way too many mouths to feed, and so much going on. We shared beds. Like there were bunk beds, and there were two girls per bed. Like and the boys all slept in one room. So it's just this constant like we are a community. We are one. We're a group, and we are a tribe. And whatever one gets, we all get, and we kind of like share with each other. So that one is the financial confessions. And then the very last clip that you'll hear is one from a podcast called On Her Mind. And the host of On Her Mind is Dina Isola. She is a um, an investment advisor representative at a wealth management firm in Manhattan. And she focuses on teachers and teacher retirement plans, which is how I actually met her because I work with teachers as well. And we ended up getting together because... Um, we both are serving teachers and really trying to help empower teachers and educate them about finances, retirement, uh, personal finance, education, et cetera. So she interviewed me about my story and the work that I've been doing and my YouTube, but this was in early 2019. So it's a little bit older than all the other ones, which is why I saved it for last. But I do think it's just a really great episode anyway. And she talks a lot about like family and values and things that I think are really important, especially right now during COVID for people to just take the time to go back and realign yourself up with your values. And I love your story because you grew so up I'm in stop Bushwick, Brooklyn, you one of nine back kids. Back back and I hope so that, that alone, you just sharing yeah. space and a really bathroom, like kudos to you. I, I'm one of seven of and I can't imagine if there were two extra bodies sharing the one and a half bathrooms that we had. So that alone you get a gold star for as far as I'm concerned. You know, your parents didn't have the luxury of an education and then you end up on the campus of Brown University, such a prestigious university. How were you able to reconcile your upbringing with the affluence that you saw at college? And did this shape how you treated your money before you became financially literate? Yeah, you know, uh, I got to say, like, to be honest, I was I was mostly resentment and, and, and like a lot of shame, too, when I got there, because well, obviously, when I didn't realize how money was going to affect me, I was just excited. I was so grateful and excited to be there. It was a beautiful campus. I, so many you know people from diverse backgrounds and courses I could take. Like, it was just eye opening and amazing. But then uh, I realized really quickly that my financial background, being low income, wasn't something that I wanted to disclose to anyone. And I would find myself feeling like really jealous of like the kids around me that were always going to the mall, going to the movies and going to the bars all the time. And I was just like, wonder, you know, how, how do they get all the money to do this stuff? Like I, I worked all the time and, and I still didn't have enough money or time really, frankly, to like go do that stuff. So, and I wonder like, how come these kids don't have to work on campus? Like I, I worked at the pizzeria, I worked at the Dean's office. I was an RA, like an advisor in my dorm. And I just still felt like, you know, even that I never had enough money. So growing up always, I thought like rich people were like bad or like money makes you bad, like a bad person. And, but, you know, so I have to say, I'm really grateful because going to Brown actually is, is one of the first times that I became really good friends with folks who were of wealthier backgrounds than my, than my background. And so because of that, I, I was able to realize that, you know, these are some of the sweetest and most supportive people that I know. And so it, money doesn't really make you bad. And, and that's kind of when I started to shift my perspective on class and wealth and how it affects the kind of person you're going to be. It made me realize like you, you really, you create the life you want. Um, 
no amount of money in the world can really make you behave in a way that you simply like refuse to behave in because because of your values. And so that that's up with me. Now, I get a lot of questions about getting out of debt. And I think that you have this credibility because you've experienced it firsthand. Um, you self-educated uh, in order to get out of it. Yeah. So you have this authenticity that a lot of people don't. What convinced you to share this journey with others? Yeah, you know, actually, it was probably a lot of the shame. It was probably a lot of that shame back, back uh, in college and, and, and shortly after college, too, because I knew that, you know, there, there's going to be people around me that probably feel that same shame. I certainly knew, like, my family, like, for sure. I knew people around me um, were also feeling similar shame in, in not having a handle on money. And that is all I got to say. So thank you all so much for coming back this week, listening to the show, and I'll be back next week. Bye.